Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a series right now called Dinner with Jesus. We're looking at how Jesus used tables to change the world. You know, it seems like Jesus did most of his ministry around a table. Why? Because tables are places of welcome, and that's what Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming the welcome of God. At Table Church, we're all about living that out. So join us as we look at some of the meals that Jesus ate with people and as we learn how those encounters continue to transform people today. And if you need anything at all, be sure to reach out to us at our website, tablechurchdsm.org. God bless, and thanks for listening. Good morning, Table Church. Happy Mother's Day to all those mothers and daughters and future mothers. Um, This morning we're going to read from the book of John, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples, who had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Once again, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us today. Um, so we are in the second week of a series called Dinner with Jesus. And this sounds like a funny name for a sermon series, perhaps, but we are looking at the ways that Jesus uses his tables to change the world. And so it's hard to think of a more, I don't know, you know, on the mark subject for table church. And in a way, you could think of this almost as a, as a vision series for this church. Now, last week, we learned that one way we can understand Jesus' message is that Jesus came to proclaim the welcome of God. He came to proclaim the welcome of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus launches his public ministry by standing up in the synagogue one day, and he takes the scroll, and he reads the reading for the day, which happened to be from the book of Isaiah. And the last line of that reading says that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what we found last week was that actually you can translate that word favor as welcome. It has very heavy hospitality tones to that root Greek word. And so we started thinking about Jesus as coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's welcome. And it wasn't just words for Jesus. He welcomed the people that the respectable citizens in society would never welcome. In fact, his entire ministry was marked by it. It wasn't something he just did every now and then. I like to think that the table... It was more than a piece of furniture for Jesus. Traditionally, we understand Jesus was a carpenter, so maybe he built a few tables in his day. Although now, scholars are telling us that the word might actually mean stone cutter, which totally messes with everything I ever thought. 
Jesus was like a stone cutter, not a carpenter, whatever. But you know, Jesus, I think, maybe shared most of his messages and maybe the table you could almost say was one of his main pulpits because of the number of parables and stories and lessons and actions that took place around a table in his ministry. In fact, one of the criticisms of Jesus was that he ate and drank too much. That was one of the main criticisms. People said that he was a drunkard and a glutton. I don't think he was actually either of those things, but in order for the rumor to start, there must have been some sort of basis. He must have been seen eating and drinking an awful lot in order for people to say that about him. Today's passage is kind of an example of that, actually. We find ourselves at a wedding reception uh, in Galilee in the town of Cana. In those days, uh, the wedding receptions could last for days on end, and families would spend an incredible amount of resources and time and energy trying to make sure that everything about this event was perfect. And to fail to entertain well or to entertain properly could bring tremendous dishonor and shame upon your family. And the most severe faux pas, or at least one of them, was to run out of wine. And that's exactly what happens. And so anybody reading this story in John 2 in, that, in those days would read it and they'd say, ooh, they ran out of wine. You know, like this is not good. Now, this story can be read on two levels. On one level, it's a story of Jesus using his power to rescue a family from embarrassment. And that's true. That's certainly what happened. But there is a much deeper meaning to this story where John kind of pulls back the curtains and shows us the heart of God in a really, really significant way. And he gives us some subtle clues in the text as far as how he's doing this. And if we read closely, we can catch some of these clues. The first one comes in the very first four words of the passage. Let's read it again. It says, on the third day. All right. I think there are some Christians in this room. What else happened on the third day? Yes, thank you. He rose from the grave. The resurrection happened on the third day. Now, these words should alert us that this story is about more than wine and parties. This story, this is really about that. John is trying to, I don't know, pull our attention, not necessarily to just wine and, you know, turning water into wine, from, but he's alerting us to what actually this whole thing is about. What is Jesus doing in the first place? What is his, his, his ministry about? And he's trying to connect it to something that's going to come later. This is really about that. It's not just about a party. It's about God renewing the entire world. The second clue happens in Jesus's interaction with his mother. This is a perfect passage for Mother's Day. They run out of wine, and of course Mary knows that Jesus, like Liam Neeson, has a very specific set of skills. <laughs> and so she goes to her son, and she says, son, they run out of wine. And then Jesus responds, don't ever speak to your mother this way, by the way. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. What would happen to you if you talked to your mom that way? I don't even want to know. Now, we should realize that um, 
in Jesus' culture, this sounds very rude to us, like how Jesus addresses his mom, but actually in that culture it wouldn't have been. It was a, more of a formal sort of address to say woman, kind of like madame or something like that today. And so Jesus wasn't actually being rude to his mother, thank goodness, because that would be an awkward thing to preach on. Um, but once again, John is giving us a clue here. Because listen, Jesus' mother appears only one other time in the Gospel of John, and it happens to be in the moment where Jesus' hour had come. Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down from the cross, and he sees his mother, and he says, Woman, let me just read it. Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And so once again, John is telling us, look, this is actually about that. What Jesus is doing here at this wedding party. Yes, that's a cool party trick, you know. But actually, it's got such a deeper meaning. Such a deeper meaning. Now, Mary, of course, is unperturbed by Jesus' response. And she continues on as though he didn't say anything. She's like, don't pull that son of God card on me, young man. I changed your diapers, you know. I kissed your boo-boos. And so she turns to the attendant and she just says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And, and, and he does. And um, she, you know, it's classic family dynamics here, isn't it? Mom tells son to do something. Son gives an excuse. Mom doesn't give a rip about the excuse and proceeds anywhere. Anyway, like, it's just a perfect little moment. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. It's interesting how much detail John suddenly decides to give us in this one sentence. He's telling us the material that the jars are made out of. They're stone as opposed to clay, which means that they were very important jars. He tells us there's six of them. He tells us they're used for religious ceremony. They were used for ceremonial washing, which we don't have time to, to camp on that. But, I mean, there's all sorts of significance there, you know, like this idea that Jesus is taking, bringing, you know, new wineskins. He's replacing the old covenant with the new one. He tells us the fact that they're big. Like, he tells us how many gallons they hold, 20 to 30 gallons. And so now we can calculate pretty easily. Jesus is about to make a lot of wine, 120 to 180 gallons of wine we're talking here. Now, in the Old Testament, wine is often associated with the arrival of the Messiah, with God's promises coming true, with God returning to his people and rescuing them. It says in Amos, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. This, this is a, a passage of hope. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. See, wine is a symbol of God's abundant blessing and presence. And here Jesus takes all of that symbolism, all of that rich symbolism, and he makes not just a little wine, but an overwhelming amount of really delicious wine. In fact, it says that the Master of Ceremonies calls the groom over and he says, look, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. And the point is very clear at this point. The day that the prophets had spoke of is here. Israel, they would have had this verse probably memorized, many of them, or verses like it. These verses, these passages that speak of hope. When, when Israel was in exile and they looked forward to the day that the prophets spoke of when God would come and rescue them and redeem them, 
Israel at this time of Jesus very much still thought they were in that space and they were looking forward to their redemption. And the point is clear, that day has arrived and it is, it is so much more abundant than you could have ever imagined. Jesus is saying that like the eternal party that, that God has promised has started and you're invited. Now I worry that today, many Christians have given into what we often refer to as a scarcity mindset. A scarcity mindset believes that there's not enough. And so we got to fight for it. Scarce, the definition, insufficient to satisfy the need or demand. And that's what that's what this characterizes our world today, the world we live in. There is never enough of anything, even when there's plenty of it. You don't have enough time, and so I literally have two Apple devices on me right now because I just don't have enough time, and they're going to help keep me straight, you know? Or you don't have enough money, and so you should pay for this thing to help you have more money. Like, it, it's everywhere. There's just this panic we're being told all the time, my rights are in danger. I don't have enough freedoms. And yet, I'm not too worried about getting arrested for preaching the gospel here today. You know, like, and there's people, some people that would actually be afraid of that. It's almost as if somebody stands to profit off of our panic, our scarcity mindset. That if we can ratchet up that mindset, then we can make more money. It's almost as though we are in a game where somebody is trying to convince Americans that they don't have enough time or enough energy or enough acceptance that their rights are in danger. And I wonder what would happen if we opted out of that. If we said, I'm not going to play that game anymore. Instead, out of our abundance, we lived lives that were rooted in the call to extend God's welcome to all. Because here's what's true. Christianity involves deprogramming our mindset of scarcity and reprogramming a mindset of abundance. That is what discipleship is. Discipleship is simply being formed into some, someone, into a particular kind of person. Our world is very good at discipleship. It's very good at convincing us and forming us and changing us and creating a culture. And so as the church, our goal is to create an alternative community to that which we are surrounded by and start to implement practices and communities that fight against the pull of this scarcity mindset. We want to become people that operate out of different assumptions about the way things actually are than the messages that we are being fed on a constant basis. We are trained to assume that there is not enough, but Jesus is trying to get us to assume that in him there is plenty. Now, I know that there are places in the world where there is not enough. There are people for whom there is not enough, for whom scarcity is a reality. I recognize that. However, I wonder how much of it is a result of the people who do have enough having a scarcity mindset about the stuff they have, and therefore there's no longer enough for anyone else. Because when we have plenty, we convince ourselves that we actually don't, and therefore people who actually don't have enough don't get what they need. It's a scarcity mindset. Acts chapter 2 paints a picture of what it looks like when the church 
lives out the implications of this miracle at Cana. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give it to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love this passage. It gives us the secret of the early church's church growth strategy. You guys ever heard of that? Did you know those exist? Church growth strategies? They teach them to pastors in seminary. They're like, you gotta have a church growth strategy. In the early church, they had one. You know what it was? There's no strategy. That was their strategy. Like, they're just like living out the welcome of God as a community. And people would see them doing it and they'd be like, well, what is this? This is something. This is different. I want to know more. And it says the Lord was adding daily the numbers that were being saved. We learn all over the Bible that the best evangelism is actually discipleship. And what I mean is that what brings people into the faith is simply Christians living out their faith. And when Jesus turned water into wine, it was a sign that God's abundant love has been uncorked for everybody. By connecting it to the resurrection, John is showing us that God's redemption of the world had begun. God is extending his eternal welcome to all. Now, I hope that this helps us realize something here. I often find myself in a space where I'm interacting with people that don't agree with me on a number of things that I believe. And many of you have this in your lives more than I do. I work at a church. Some of you go in every day to what we might call an ideologically contested space. That's where there is, on, on the big, issue, big questions of meaning and purpose and that sort of stuff, there, there's a, a wide range of disagreement going on. Some of you pull into a parking spot at work and the car on one side of you has a bumper sticker with the letters M-A-G-A. And then the car on the other side has a bumper sticker and it says something like defund the police. Or, you know, like you're, you're going, how am I supposed to walk in here and be part of the team? Here's something that I think is fairly recent in our culture. Um, politics is kind of the new religion. So as our culture becomes increasingly secularized, the problem is that we are irreducibly religious creatures, which means that we will always find something to fill the slot that itches the, that scratches the transcendence itch that we all have. You know, the thing that helps us identify our answers to life's ultimate questions about uh, meaning and, and purpose and that kind of thing. And if there's not a religion there for you, well, then it becomes something else. And I think what we are increasingly seeing is that politics in our culture is taking that slot. And I'm not the first person to think that, by the way, but it seems tr to be the case to me. Um, by the way, that's not the way it is everywhere in the world. I've had this conversation actually with Moses before. Moses Bamet, one of our mission directors, he's Kenyan, and he's, for, for example, in Kenya, he says, no, actually, people can and, and do sit around the dinner table and talk about politics in Kenya, and they can disagree on them, and they can still love each other and be friends afterwards. In fact, it's kind of fun sometimes, and I'm like, how do they do that? 
Like, that would be horrible. Well, you know why? It's because there, religion is religion. Politics isn't religion. Politics is not answering ultimate questions. It's not the place where people anchor their identity and meaning and purpose. And yet more and more, that's what's happening here. And so what this does, I'm so far off my script right now. I don't even know where I am. What this does is it, it creates a, a place where we feel like we got to draw territorial lines, like these invisible boundaries, and we got to take more and more space for our ideological, our political viewpoint. And you know what that is? It's a scarcity mindset. And so that's just one kind of meta way that it is, that it is happening in our culture, this scarcity mindset through these divisions that we have. So you walk into work and you think, what am I supposed to do? How do I live in that space as a follower of Jesus? I'll tell you how. Jesus shows us how. The answer is that you walk in a space like that by intensifying your welcome. We must intensify our welcome of others. Make it so clear to people that you love them that when they find out you're a Christian, the love that you've shown them far surpasses the difference. This is what Jesus shows us over and over and over again. This is a paradigm shift. He shows us that belonging comes before believing. Belonging comes before believing. I don't know how else to describe what he does around tables. But this is what he shows us. We often get this backwards. Some of you, I think, probably come from backgrounds, maybe church backgrounds, that say, no, first you got to agree. First we got to believe the right stuff. Then you're one of us. Then you're part of us. I can't help but notice that Jesus seems to do the exact opposite over and over again. I'm not saying what you believe doesn't matter. I'm saying that for Jesus, he leads with welcome. Belonging first, you are welcome at this table. And notice, transformation occurs after. What, we, what did we learn last week about Levi, the tax collector? Jesus sits with him at a table, and then he follows Jesus. Many scholars think Levi is actually Matthew. Like, yes, that Matthew, who would go on to write a gospel. <laughs> Belonging first, then believing, and the transformation comes once we know that we belong. That's how Jesus did it. He led with welcome. So let's live out the abundant welcome of God as a, as a people, as a church. The week that I wrote this sermon, it was kind of a crazy week for me. My wife was out of town, and so I'm trying to figure out how to get the kids everywhere they need to go. My parents came and helped, you know, so we did fine. But I left work early to get them from school, so I just had a shortened week. And I was a little stressed about everything I had to do. And I had a meeting with somebody. And Steve might be in the room right now. I'm not going to say who it was. But I have a lot of meetings, so it probably wasn't you. And I thought, I'm just, I'm too busy. I'm going to have to cancel the meeting. And I thought, uh, they'll understand. They'll think, oh, that, that poor husband without his wife and the kids. Poor guy. What's he going to do? That's all right, pastor. You don't have to have the meeting. I thought, it'll be fine. They'll be. And then I'm, I'm writing this very sermon. 
about having a scarcity mindset and about living out the abundant welcome of God. And God is like shaking me awake and it's like, what's the point of writing a sermon if I ignore my own words that I'm literally writing right now? I'm typing and I'm like, I should cancel my appointment. I have so much to do, you know? This doesn't make any sense. And so I, I kept the meeting. I mean, what is my job if it's not to like help people identify what God is doing in their lives? And so I kept the meeting and of course, guess what? Worked out just fine. I had a mentor for 13 years and he asked me this question early in our relationship. He said, Phil, you need to ask God, what is his special gift to you? I'm like, that's a really vague question. What is God's special gift to me? I don't know. You know, I'm pretty good at ping pong. I, I'm not sure. And I prayed about it for a while, and eventually I felt like God actually did answer that prayer and kind of gave me an idea of what it was. But he told me what his special gift was. He says, I don't know what it is. God always seems to answer my prayers, my small prayers even. God always seems to answer my small prayers. And he said, for example, over and over again, I'll have, I'll have too much to do in a day. And I'll say, God, stretch my hours or direct my steps or figure, Lord, help me get this done. And he'll say, I'll have time left over by the end. He says, that kind of stuff happens to me all the time. See, that's teaching us an abundance mindset. God wants to take these things from us and help us to learn that in him, there's always enough belonging. See, as that delicious wine poured out of those giant jars, it was a metaphor for the unending and lavish love that God is pouring out upon us. It was a message saying that for a follower of Jesus, there's no such thing as scarcity when it comes to belonging. When it comes to belonging, there's plenty. So what can we do to become a church that welcomes well? One big thing we're doing is, you've heard us talk about it, immigrant connection. Immigrant connection is a way that we're extending welcome to people in our community from other countries who are having to navigate the complex legal system, we're gonna be able to offer legal services for those folks. And why? Because we're table church, because we want to extend and proclaim the welcome of God. Um, this is why our hospitality team matters so much. If you're not serving, we could use more people on our hospitality team. Their job is to welcome people. And I know it's like, oh, I'm just holding the door. I'm just like, you know, making the coffee or something. No, you are welcoming. And that is what Jesus did. And that is what we are called to do. You cannot demean it. It's so important. We, I need people to lead table groups. When people come to a church and they're new, one of the things they often really want is to connect relationships. We need places for them to go to have these sorts of opportunities. We need more table group leaders and hosts. So if you're willing to do that, please write it on your connection card. Table group leader, table group, let's call it a host. Leader's scary for people. Table group host, write it on your connection card. We could sure use some more of those. I would love to launch some more table groups this fall. These are all ways that we can be a church that welcomes well. Small ways, in fact. Here's another thing we're doing. You heard me talk about it last week. Dinner groups. Dinner groups are where we're going to pair, or not pair, but put in triads, three units from our congregation. So it might be a family, it might be a retired couple, it might be a single, you know, units or households. We're going to put them together in a group, and the goal is for you over the course of a couple, two or three months to have a meal 
Each person or each unit gets to host it. They make the entree, everyone else brings everything else. And, and Megan and I are gonna try to pair you up in ways that we know you're probably not best buds. Like you might be with somebody you don't really know very well. We're gonna do our best not to put you with your best friend or a family member. You know, like we want people to connect across our church. And so if you wanna be in a dinner group and you haven't signed up yet, write dinner group on your connection card. By the way, most of you signed up already, which is pretty cool. We, um, I mean, we have between 110 and 150 people that come on a Sunday morning. And right now we have like 41 households that have signed up. So that's just about everybody, I think. But if you haven't done it yet, you can still do it. You can write it on your card. It was, there's a link in my email from this week. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm excited to see what God does. But get out there and just get to know and connect with folks from our church that you might not already know. And who knows what God will do with those relationships. But these are all just like small ways of starting to train ourselves towards welcome. And I, some of us might think, well, my, my apartment's too small. I can't host. Or I'm not a very good cook or something like that. And, and those, those areas of maybe vulnerability are actually important. That, that's part of the point. It's to say, you know what? I don't have this, but in Christ I have enough. I have plenty. And, and so there's always another way to do it. You can uh, use the ministry center to meet in, or you can, you know, order pizza and everybody chip in, or something like, there's always a way to welcome people well. And so, let's be a church that shares our lives with one another. Let's be a church that lives out the abundance that God has given us, and let's welcome others into it. We also have a church picnic coming up on May 28th, at Greenwood Park right after church, probably around noon. Hope you can come to that as well. Uh, there's a splash pad there, so parents, be sure to, if you want your kids to be in that, be sure to plan accordingly. I'm just excited for all the ways that God is setting us up as a church to just have our arms open wide for our community. And I think it's only gonna continue. And I'm thrilled to be a part of a body that faithfully and courageously walks through those doors. So thank you, Table Church, for being like that. Let's keep pressing in on that. Would you pray with me? Well, God, I pray you would continue to hold us up to a higher standard of welcome, that you would help us to understand, first of all, that your posture towards us is one of welcome. You're just going, yes, I wanna be with you. Don't you understand? The whole, that's the whole point of this. This is why I created the world, is that I want to be with you. This is why I came and I died and I rose, because I want to be with you. Lord, your heart towards us is one of welcome, and so many people, so many of us in this room, I bet, don't think of you that way. We think of a God who's like, oh, if you pass the test, if you say the right things, then I'll let you in. But for you, Jesus, it was belonging first. That was just assumed. And yet we don't assume it very much for ourselves and we don't assume it very much for others. Change our hearts, Lord. Flip our hearts from one of scarcity to one of welcome. I pray these things in your name. Amen.